0: Hey there, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're really glad you decided to join us for our study in the Gospel of Mark. We pray that it blesses you and that your mind is blown as you encounter Jesus Christ in a fresh new way. If you're looking for more information about New River Church, just check us out at newriverchurch.org. This morning, we're gonna go to Mark chapter three. So if you turn to Mark chapter three, that's where we will be. We're studying the Gospel of Mark this fall, and uh, today we're up to Mark chapter three. You know, every dating relationship has that moment that it reaches where you have to have this conversation. Some people call it the DTR. DTR stands for Define the Relationship. You know, it's where you say, well, things are going well, we're having a lot of fun together, where are we going? Like, are we going to be friends forever, or is this going to be more serious? You know, the define the relationship talk. Um, I would not recommend doing it the way that I did it with Karis. Uh, it really didn't. It wasn't the greatest. You know. I've, I've learned a lot over the years, let's just say. So she started with some very raw material. How about that? But uh, so we were friends in college, and we, were, we sang in a couple of singing groups together, and we were hanging out, and she graduated two years ahead of me because she's really smart. So she graduated two years ahead, but she got a job on campus, and so she was working on campus, and I was still a student on campus, and we were hanging out and, you know, all that. And I got to admit, I definitely... Definitely indicated to her that I wanted to be more than friends, you know, I mean, she could obviously tell that I was interested, that sort of thing. And um, it came into uh, Christmas of my senior year, so I, uh, you know, the semester ended, went home for Christmas, and then I came back for the January term. We had this three-week intensive class at campus there, and I came back for that class, and of course, Karis is thinking that we're going to hang out and all that, and uh, I went radio silent for a month. I didn't talk to her. She didn't even she didn't know whether I was on campus or not or not. And like totally silent. Not cool. And left her wondering, what's Doug doing? See? And then to make matters worse, when the class ended, so the a couple of buddies and I, we thought it'd be great to celebrate the end of the class by going skiing. Only only I was a poor college student, and well, she had a job, so you know how that goes. So uh, so after not talking to her for a whole month, I show up, yeah, and ask to borrow money to go skiing, right? Yeah, wah, wah, wah. Not my brightest moment, that's for sure. So then she, she gives me the money, which is really amazing. She gives me the money, and then she says, when you get back from skiing, we need to have... A talk right. <laughs> that was the talk. There we go. So she called for the DTR, not me. So we had a talk, and I don't know. It must have worked out because yesterday, yesterday was 34 years, right, sweetie? Of meritable, of meritable bliss. So praise the Lord. And uh, and the lesson here for you guys is, gentlemen, uh, find a forgiving woman because you need it. That's that's the lesson. Now we've been studying in the Gospel of Mark. And we're coming into chapters three and four, this week and next week. And chapters three and four are the define the relationship. They're the DTR of the gospel. It's kind of like this, the first two chapters. The first two chapters, it certainly looks like Jesus is God in the flesh. I mean, he acts with authority. Now, just try to put yourself in the shoes of someone who doesn't know the story. Now I know that's hard for us, but you, but you kind of need to as you're studying the gospel, try to think of this as if you're reading it for the very first time. You don't know about Jesus. You don't know what he came to do. You're a Roman because that's who this is written to. Mark is writing to Romans. He wants them to have this testimony of Jesus. And so you've never, you know, you maybe have heard a few little things about this Jesus character over in Palestine, but you don't know much. So you're just getting started in this. And as you're reading this, you're definitely getting this impression that Jesus is something pretty special, don't you? I mean, he's, he, uh, he unites heaven and earth. He acts with authority, he heals sickness, he commands demons to leave, and they go. Like all indicators point to Jesus being pretty amazing. But even more than that, we've already seen that Jesus has compassion for broken people, that Jesus forgives sinners, he offers forgiveness, and Jesus gets angry at stubborn rebellious, religious, self-righteous hearts, like those really get him mad. And you think, wow, Jesus is not afraid of my sin. You know that? That's good news for you and me. He's not afraid of your sin. Doesn't matter how big you think it is, Jesus is not afraid of it. But Jesus won't stand for your stubborn refusal to receive his grace. He won't. And Mark is making this claim in chapters 1 and 2 that Jesus is the gospel. And we've learned that the word gospel means good news that changes everything. And so to make his point, he wants us to know that Jesus is the good news that changes everything. And to make his point, Mark needs to show us how Jesus is the good news that changes everything. And well, if you think about it, someone who can do the things that Jesus does certainly has the potential to change everything wouldn't you agree but mark also needs to show us what jesus has come to change because your agenda for how everything can be changed and my agenda for how change should happen might be different actually is probably different from jesus's agenda wouldn't you agree We might think, see, we might think, Jesus, the way to change everything is you have to overthrow the government. Or Jesus, the way to change everything is you have to solve all social injustices. You have to do that. But what if Jesus' plan for changing everything doesn't involve overhauling governments or curing social ills? Like, what if that's actually not his plan for changing everything? And this is where Jesus meets his greatest resistance in our lives, because we bring our list of things that we think must change, and we bring them to him, and we cry out for him to fix it, and then, doggone it, he doesn't seem moved by it. Have you ever felt that tension in your life? Like, why isn't he moved by the same things that move me? Why isn't he annoyed by the same things that annoy me? Why does he not seem to care about Aunt Mary's cancer? Why does he not seem to care about starving people like I do? Why does he not seem to care about you fill in the blank? We all have it. Like, and often this is where we begin to have a problem with Jesus. And it's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus really doesn't seem to be too uh, phased by that. Have you noticed that? It's almost like he doesn't need me. It's almost like he's not here to please me. Hmm. It's almost like he's God and I'm not. Oh, that's interesting like like right it's like he doesn't need me to believe in him but I need to believe in him like literally my belief in him is what determines my eternity forever whether it's in hell or in heaven like my belief in him is absolutely critical the other way around he doesn't need me to believe in him he's still who he is at the end of the day whether I believe in him or not. And someone like Jesus, someone with that confidence, with that character that he displays, that kind of person, he invokes reactions. You simply cannot be around him and remain neutral. You, you will either embrace him or you will hate him. You'll either be confused by him or you might try to use him. I mean, because somebody like that could maybe get you things, see? But one thing you're not going to do is you're not going to remain neutral. You're not going to just think of him as this good teacher. See, Jesus is not this flat, limp rag of a character. He's not this weaselly wimp hoping that people will accept him, wringing his hands. No, he is strong, and he's authoritative, and he comes to our defense And the last time that we looked at the Gospel of Mark, which is two weeks ago, last week was our 25th anniversary, so two weeks ago, we ended at Mark chapter 3, verse 6, and we noted that right here in the early parts of chapter 3, already people want to kill him. We've barely started the book, and people want him dead. So with that as a brief backdrop, Mark now shifts his attention to you and me as the readers in chapters 3 and 4, and he essentially asks us this question. It's as if Mark is saying, they wanted to kill him. That, that was their take. What's yours? What will you do with Jesus? See, it's a DTR. He's giving you and me the opportunity to make our own reaction, our own... Um, impression if you will of Jesus and to define the kind of relationship that we're going to have with him. And to do that, Mark actually in chapter 3 gives us several typical reactions to Jesus. So he models it for us. And then in chapter 4 we'll look at that next Sunday. Chapter 4 Jesus teaches, and in his teaching he teaches about these reactions. And between the two of them, you and I are brought to this decision point. What will I Do about Jesus because I can't stay neutral. He won't let me. It's either one or the other. I will love him and embrace him, or I will hate him and run from him. But I cannot just keep him in this loop, you know, quasi mushy gray spot. He's either or. And this is what he brings us to in chapters 3 and 4. So today we're just going to read chapter 3. I'll start with verse 6 because that's where we ended two weeks ago and we'll just pick that up. So chapter 3, verse 6. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake. And a large crowd from Galilee followed when they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. So, For he, healed, for he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You're the Son of God! But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. Jesus went up on a mountainside, and he called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 he appointed, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He's possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons. He's driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him, and he began to speak to them in parables. all their sins, and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Well, then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and my sister and my mother. So first of all, do you notice just the kindness of Jesus in his heart? We see in verse 6 that they want to kill him. Things are getting hot. And so Jesus withdraws in verse 7. And the purpose of that withdrawal is to try to cool things down a little bit. Jesus is trying to control the, the, the crowd and control their responses to him. He withdraws. So he, I imagine he's trying to go to a nice lakeside retreat center perhaps with his disciple, you know, with the guys. And and what happens? Somebody tweets out the location. Next thing you know, a whole crowd is gathering again. And they're coming from everywhere everywhere to be healed by Jesus. Mark says they're coming from Jerusalem, Idumea, the other side of the Jordan River, Judea, Tyre, Sidon. That's a geographic area that spreads about 40 square miles. That's impressive when you think that people were walking this. And then when you realize they were walking it sick, they were walking it wounded. They were hobbling on crutches, perhaps, carrying sick people on mats, maybe strapped grandma to the back of a donkey. We got to go to the healing service. And they're doing this for 40 miles. And then when you think about how information would travel, it would have traveled by word of mouth. So who's to say that by the time the word gets from where Jesus is to where I am 40 miles away? and i get myself situated and ready and we get on the way we get there that by the time i get there jesus hasn't moved on to some other place it gives you the sense that this crowd is desperate they they've they're they're this close to a healing they're this close to a breakthrough and they're like we're going to whatever it takes we're going to get over there and verse 10 tells us that they're pushing they were literally crowding him in jesus had to get in a boat and put a little bit of distance between himself because they're right up on the shore and Jesus is like, you're in my bubble, man, my space, right? They're all, they're all up in his grill there and Jesus is like, let me get a boat. So he's got a little boat and he's sitting in the water to put some, do you get the picture? Mark is giving us this, this idea of, of kind of a desperate mob scene. People are hungry to get their miracle. So we see two things in this scene. You see desperate people, but you also see a willing God because Jesus is healing them. He's meeting their needs. Jesus is withdrawn to get some space and to cool things down, and the crowd follows him, and Jesus still meets the need of the crowd, doesn't he? That's his heart. That's the kindness of Jesus coming through. And, you know, maybe you're in this crowd. Maybe this defines your relationship with Jesus. You need things. He has things to give. You need a miracle, he's a miracle-working God. You need a breakthrough, he's got the power. See, you need him. And so you pursue him. You have problems, you have issues. You need God to fix them. So you keep coming to church, you keep hoping that God will come through and fix your problems, and you hear stories about answered prayers, and you think, yeah, I'm gonna get my miracle pretty soon. You're hoping for your own. And listen, that's not bad. Please hear that. Hear me clearly. We're not going to, that's not a bad way. We all come to Jesus. We start that way. We all come with problems. We all come with one big problem. It's called sin. Like that's the one big problem that we all have, that we all come to him with. And that's how we come to him, see? So don't hear this as bad, but can I ask you this? Do you want more? Like, don't you want Jesus to be more than just the fix-it person in your life? More than just like, you know, your emergency call button that when you get in trouble, you send out a prayer and you run to him. Like, don't you want Jesus to be more than that, you see? In verse 13, Jesus calls some to more. Verse 13 tells us that he goes up on a mountainside and he calls these 12 men to himself. You see that? And, and he calls them and he says, I'm going to send them out and I'm going to give them authority see, to do what he's been doing. So, so here's this group of people that have embraced more with Jesus, haven't they? So you have out of the thousands that are there crowding in to seek a miracle, you have these 12 that now come with Jesus up into the mountainside. And he's going to invest in them and he's going to send them out with his own authority that's pretty amazing. Would you want to be a part of that 12, that group that comes out of the masses and now you're with the master, you see? Now, there's a couple of things going on here. And, and to understand it, we need to think like a Roman. Because remember, Mark is writing this in 62 AD to Romans. And so Romans, when they would have heard that Jesus had taken these 12 men into a mountainside, they would have thought to themselves about a revolt. Because you see, in the first century, Jews were under the Roman thumb. And so there were many, uh, because of that, there were many little fraction groups that would meet up in the hillsides, in the rough and tumble country of the Judean hillside. And that's where they would plan their revolts. They get around, they, they figure out their subversive activities and so forth. And so, when the, and so when the Romans are reading this, they're hearing, okay, wait a second, Jesus, he has a lot of power, he exercises authority, and now he's just gathered 12 guys into the hills. I know what he's doing. He's planning a revolt against Rome. That's how the Romans would have heard that. When they first read that. Now, if you're a Jew and you're hearing this being read for the very first time, you would have pictured something altogether different. You would have imagined the glory days of ancient Israel when King David gathered all the 12 tribes of Israel, all 12 tribes, gathered them together as one united nation. And that, were the, that was the glory days. Like That was when Israel was at her zenith as a country and as a nation. And every Jew longed for those days to come back again. And so when you're a Jew hearing this, you're like, Jesus has 12 men? Oh, I know what that means. He's restoring Israel back to her old glory. Yes! And he's uniting it under himself in these 12 men. Now, if you were a Roman and if you were a Jew... You would have both been right, and you would have both been wrong. Because Jesus uh, was planning a revolution, just not the kind they had expected. And Jesus was restoring glory, just not the way they pictured it. see, you and I aren't supposed to know this yet, because remember, we're the original readers. Try to put yourself in their shoes. But if you're the original reader, and you don't know where this is going yet... You're reading this and you say, your, your attention has definitely been grabbed and Mark has just given you a hint, you see, of something that he is now going to be doing for the rest of the book. Mark is going to begin to deconstruct our notions of revolution and glory. And he's going to show us that Jesus did not come to conquer Rome, he came to conquer hearts. And he'll never fire a shot, he's going to lay down his life. And he's going to show us that Jesus is not coming to restore Israel's glory as a nation. No, he's coming to restore God's glory in you, the glory with which he created you, but from which you have fallen short. And so here's the DTR question for us. Do you want to partner with Jesus in bringing his kingdom to earth? Would you, would you be one of those 12? Would you choose to adopt the apostolic mission as your own? You know that it could be. The apostolic mission could be your mission. You say, what do I mean by that? Well, the word apostle is an important word. And it's a word that was borrowed from the Romans. You see, as you know, the Roman Empire was vast. And at its zenith, the Roman Empire encompassed all of Europe, Middle East, northern Africa, and as the Roman Empire stretched her boundaries and conquered new lands, they would send emissaries from Rome to those newly conquered territories. And the goal, the purpose of those emissaries was to basically Romanize them. They were sent there to take the Roman culture, the Roman ways, and so forth to those conquered territories and to make them like Rome, you see. And those emissaries were called Apostles. And so now Jesus has these 12 men, and this word gets used. He's taking this word and he's applying this now to these 12 men. And so they were to be apostles, not for the Roman Empire, they were to be apostles for the kingdom of heaven. They were to be apostles to bring the values of the kingdom to this planet and to influence it in every way politically, with the arts, scientifically, in education in the commercial world, et cetera, et cetera. Like the goal of these apostles is to establish the kingdom on earth. And what about you? Jesus is still calling apostles. This is the calling he has on your life and mine. He's still calling us. Will you leave the thousands? Will you leave the thousands that just want a miracle from Jesus? And will you come and adopt the mission of Jesus on this planet? He's calling us to this. Is that how you will define the relationship? Before you answer that question, let's take a look at what happens next. Not even Jesus' own family signs up. In fact, they think that Jesus has lost his mind. In verse 21, Jesus enters a house, and the place is packed with people. And Mark tells us in verse 21 that when his family heard about it, they went to collect him because they thought he had lost his mind. Now, that's hard for us to understand. And if you're coming from a Catholic background, you really have a hard time understanding that. Because we've revered Mary. We've elevated her and you know we and she certainly no no nothing negative against mary definitely a great girl right we're not saying that like she gave birth to the messiah god bless mary but we've elevated her higher than she needs to be and we've made her perfect and she was just another human being like you and i she wasn't divine right and so so it's hard for people to imagine that mary herself mary might have had a moment when she questioned the sanity of Jesus. And yet, there it is. Mark chapter 3, verse 21. It's true. Clearly, now clearly she didn't maintain this thought. Clearly it's not something that Mary camped out in and stayed in for the rest of her life. But she had a moment, right? And in this moment, along with Jesus' siblings, she actually tried to collect him because she thought he had gone mad. And it certainly is one way that we can respond to jesus perhaps you've had your own moments when you thought god was crazy been there i've had my moments you know has god ever behaved in a way that you didn't expect yes i mean in the bible we have examples we have the prophet jeremiah who accused god of lying to him that's in the bible David thought that God had forsaken him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Abraham thought God had forgotten about him. Um, Hagar, maybe you know that story. See? So I guess what I'm saying is I know in my own experience, like, There have been times when I've been confused by God, times when I felt like God lied to me. I have experienced that. I've experienced feeling abandoned by God. I've I've experienced certainly times when I didn't think God knew what he was doing, and I sure didn't trust him. I'm just keeping it real. See, it would seem like this is all part of a normal relationship between a human being and the God of the universe. After all, he is infinite, and I am finite. And if I am to be his friend, I have to accept some mystery in the relationship. Amen? I have to. If, if, you, if you know God, there's one thing you know. There's a lot of him you don't know. <laughs> right? But I know him. See, anybody that says they, they think they've got God figured out, they don't know God and you really have to get comfortable kind of with the mystery if you're going to walk with him. And so, did Mary have a moment? Yeah, Mary had a moment. And we can't hold that against her, right? I've been there too, girl. I know all about that moment. In verse 22, in verse 22, the teachers of the law, they have their own opinion about Jesus. Look at that. They believe that Jesus is possessed by Beelzebul. They're they're saying that Jesus is possessed by the devil. That's crazy. And see, that's why Jesus is doing all these great things that he's doing. That's it, the devil. It's the power of the devil. That's what it is. Yeah. And I love how Jesus handles that. Jesus is so cool in this because Jesus doesn't call them names back. You call me Beelzebub, I'm calling you, you know, whatever. He doesn't do that. Jesus is just basically just Tells them why they're being stupid. Like, you you, you don't want to think through this, fellas. Like, if I'm the devil, why would I be casting out the devil? Like, that doesn't even make sense. That's kind of his argument. I'm like, Jesus, you are so cool. I love you, right? And then Jesus gives this strong warning again in verses 28 and 29. And a lot of people call this the unforgivable sin. Maybe you've heard that word before. This is where they get that term, unforgivable sin. They get this out of Mark chapter 3. But let, me, but let me just suggest that that's a little deeper than that, that simply calling it the unforgivable sin is actually maybe not thinking about it quite deeply enough. Let me illustrate it this way. So let's say that you don't trust your doctor, that you think your doctor is a quack. Do you think that that might have catastrophic results potentially in your own life? Like you think your doctor is crazy, So your doctor comes to you and says, you know you have cancer. (laughs) no I don't. You're nuts, doc. And you don't listen to the doctor. That could kill you, couldn't it? Because it doesn't change the fact that you have cancer. What's changed is your perception of your doctor. Your perception of your doctor has actually set you up for failure. Okay, now, and if Jesus is standing there and he's doing these incredible miracles and he's acting with such compassion and authority and forgiveness and you think he's the devil what chance do you have of listening to him and receiving what he has to offer to you see these men have condemned themselves by refusing to accept the things that they're witnessing with their very eyes it's as if they're saying this you know i know that i see miracles i know i know what i'm seeing I see miracles and I see people being forgiven and I see your compassion and your authority and I see demons fleeing and I see lives changing, but you can't be God. That's got to be the devil. See, some, sort of age-old principle is this. It holds true in every, every generation. The devil is bad, God is good. And here's these men taking the good things that they see, witnessing there, and they're attributing it to the devil. Basically, what hope is there for their souls? See? And this is Jesus' warning to them. So now this section closes then with one more little scene that makes us uncomfortable, but it actually would be shocking to the first century audience. And maybe you felt it as I read it earlier. We love our families very much, for the most part, right? We love our families. But in Palestine in the first century, they actually uh, had what sociologists call a shame honor culture. And if you're familiar with shame honor cultures, they, they work like this, like the family unit is absolutely everything. And so you do everything you can to, uh, to bring honor to your family and to elevate your family in the eyes of the society around you. And if you do something, you don't want to dare do anything that brings shame to your family. That's a shame honor culture, okay? And so this explains perhaps why Mary and the other kids went to collect Jesus because he was embarrassing. They saw a potential problem. They saw their family reputation hanging in the balance, you see, and they needed to take care of Jesus before he made things worse on the family. And so verse 31 says, standing outside, they sent someone inside to go get Jesus. To do this little family intervention, we've got to go grab him before things get worse. And Jesus' response to that person redefines and it challenges our social construct of family. Who is Jesus's family? Is it biological or spiritual? Spiritual. And which one does Jesus seem to elevate? The biological or the spiritual? The spiritual. It challenges our construct, doesn't it, of family? It's not to say that your family is terrible. Obviously, we have verses about honoring your parents and your family and so forth. It just means that we need to make certain that we don't elevate that one above this one. Jesus defines family spiritually. Anyone who does the will of God is Jesus' mother, brother, or sister. And, and this is the question that we are left to consider. Am I a part of Jesus' family? Not the one who's embarrassed by him, but of the spiritual family, the one that embraces the will of God, the one that embraces the mission of God, the cause on earth. Like, am I part of that family or am I part of this one that's embarrassed of him? Which family am I a part of in Jesus' life? See? So, this is what we have here in chapter 3. Mark has given us some typical reactions to the person of Jesus. And he leaves us with this question, where are you? Who are you? How will you define your relationship with Jesus? Will you be part of the Jesus help me crowd? That certainly is one of the ways that they reacted. We're praying and we're hoping for a miracle, right? You're believing that Jesus can do something good for you. He can get me out of trouble. He can bail me out financially. He can can make my spouse love me more. He can bring my kids back to me, like whatever your problem is. Jesus is little more to you than a divine problem solver. And when the problems settle down, you tend to put Jesus on the back burner of your life and you wait for the next crisis and then you call out to him again. The truth is you don't want Jesus to change your life. You just want him to fix things that make you uncomfortable. But again, there's a lot of people in this crowd This is where most of the people are, aren't they? And if you think about most people's relationship with God, it's there, it stays right here. I come to God with problems and I stay there with problems. Or maybe you're in the Jesus is crazy crowd, Jesus is insane, you don't understand him, he confuses you, he says and he does things that you maybe disagree with or that leave you wondering. And you don't deny his existence. I mean, you haven't given up on your faith. You believe he's still the Savior and all of that. It's just that instead, you've now recast him in an image that you can understand, in an image that you can grab a hold of. You don't want to believe that Jesus has ultimate authority that can send you to hell. We can't embrace that. That's too uncomfortable. So I prefer to think of him as sheep-loving, Kind and gentle, non-threatening, you know, and he just approves of everything that I do. Like I can just sin and do whatever I do, and Jesus is up in heaven going, "Ha, ha you silly! Ha, look at you! I love you, love you, Jesus." Like that's that's kind of your picture of Jesus. See, you don't want to. You want a Jesus that you can control. You don't want who control. You don't want one who controls you. Or maybe you're in the Jesus is the enemy crowd. It's another crowd. Oh, he makes you mad. Like, who does he think he is? And what right does he have to tell me how to run my life? Like, what right does he have to tell me who I can sleep with and who I can't? What right does he have to tell me how, you know, what I can and what I cannot believe? What right does he have to demand that there's no other way to heaven except him? I can't come up with my own plan. See? And Jesus is an enemy. And the truth is, if you could, you would silence any and all religious noise. Jesus is your enemy because he threatens your way of life and the things that you want to do with it. And so you want to get rid of him as fast as possible. And perhaps this is you today. Or perhaps you're in the Jesus is my everything crowd. Jesus put his hand on these 12 men, and he designated them as his apostles. He designated them to become so influenced by the kingdom, so influenced by him and a love for him and his person, so influenced by his presence permeating their lives, that they were literally like living it everywhere that they went. And Jesus is still calling men and women to the same lifestyle. He is. He's calling us to a life saturated with God. He's calling us to a life drenched in the character of Jesus and dripping with the kingdom. And a life like this has influence anywhere it goes, making wherever it goes like, just like heaven. And a life like this is dangerous to hell. Because anywhere a life like this goes, the works of Jesus go with it. The sick are healed, dead are raised, demons flee, lives change. But to have Jesus as my everything, catch this, to have Jesus as my everything means nothing can be left of me. That's what that means. He increases, I decrease. That's what we're signing up for. To have Jesus as my everything means nothing can be left of me. And notice something in this text. That thousands followed Jesus to the miracle. Twelve followed Jesus as apostles. None followed him to the cross. And yet Jesus is calling us to that, isn't he? This is how Jesus would define the relationship. This is what he's asking for. And yet many of us choose to compromise with that call and instead define the relationship on our own terms. I'm happy to have you, Jesus, when I need you. And, and I'm happy to have you, Jesus, as long as I can define you in a way that's comfortable with me. And, and see, but I, I don't know that I want to actually give up everything and follow you. And yet that's what Jesus is asking us. And as Mark does so well, we've already seen it in chapter 2, Mark drops this little statement on us, kind of like a a bomb at the end of chapter 3. He says, whoever does God's will, you see that statement? Whoever does God's will is my brother and my sister and my mother. And he leaves you and me thinking about ourselves. That's what he does, doesn't he? Will I do God's will? Will I be a part of this family And are you? And that's the question I want to leave us with this morning. How will you define the relationship that you will have with Jesus? If there's one thing, worship team, you can come, sweetie. If there's one thing that Jesus has demonstrated here in Mark already, it's that you can't be neutral in your response to Jesus. You cannot. If you're neutral in your response to Jesus, you haven't encountered him yet. Can I say that again? If you're neutral in your response to Jesus, you have not encountered him yet. But stick with us in the Gospel of Mark. You'll encounter him. You will see a Jesus that scares you to death. And then you will be faced with the decision, will I give myself to him, or will I run? But there's one thing you don't do. You don't just say, oh, he was a good teacher and go about living your life with the Jesus label, but not really Jesus as Lord. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I don't even know how to pray this, Lord, but I see in my heart. Um, I just know God. That uh, I just know God that you terrify me sometimes. I I like I like church, Lord, where I can feel warm and comfortable and and sing a few songs and have some grape juice and 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 think about some of these great Bible stories and, and they just make me feel good, Jesus. But then I come face to face with the one who created it all I come face to face with the one who holds the universe in his hand and i feel lord like i've caught a hurricane by the tail and and i think lord if i were to follow you like really follow you what would that possibly mean to my life like that would probably destroy everything that i'm comfortable with god and Yet I sense that's what you're doing. And so I so Lord, I don't even know how to ask this, God, but I I, I pray that you would give us the strength um, as a people to say, Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, to you. You're 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 not just my problem solver, Jesus. <clears throat> you're the Lord of all things. And I know I definitely don't want to be your enemy. I know that. But I'm also sorry, Jesus, for the times that I've recast you in an image that makes me comfortable. Because that's not you either. So, Lord, I just feel like I'm left with no other option. Wow, Jesus, you painted me in a corner. I'm yours. Thanks for listening today. If you'd like more encouragement or information about New River Church, check us out at newriverchurch.org.